This podcast is sponsored by Bethany House Publishers. Order Carved in Ebony through Baker Bookhouse and save 30% off plus free shipping. Visit bakerbookhouse.com to purchase. Welcome to episode eight of the Carved in Ebony podcast, where we share bite-sized lessons about the women of Carved in Ebony. I am Jasmine Holmes, the author of Carved in Ebony. I am here with the Snuffleupagus again. He is (laughs) having a midday snack. And we're also joined by... Abina. illustrious... Uh, Just Abina. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone. We are so excited to be here with you to talk about, I think, one of the first women that I decided was going to be in the book. Mariah Fearing was an easy decision for me because of the work that I do with the Edmiston Center in Mm. Atlanta. Um, The Edmiston Center is connected to RTS Atlanta, and they are committed to telling the stories of Christians who are serving God on the margins of society. And that looks like the persecuted church throughout the ages. And people don't usually think about the black church in America as being part of the persecuted church. Mm -hmm. But she was forever so long. Um, It was illegal to read the Bible. It was illegal to join together and assemble. It was illegal to preach certain parts of the, you know, there, there, there was so much persecution. So um, the Edmiston Center is named after Althea and Alonzo Edmiston, who were missionaries to the Congo with Miss Mariah Fearing. And so that's kind of how I learned her name and how I got into trying to find out more about her. Mariah was one of the hardest to find information about. She and Sarah G. Stanley were neck and neck. Now we at least have pictures of Mariah. We don't have pictures of Sarah. So there's that. Mm -hmm. But the one like premier biography about Mariah Stewart is written by Althea Edmiston. And it's in this book of missionary stories and biographies. And it is so hard to get your hands on. I searched and searched and searched. I was like, maybe I can find it online. Maybe I can find Mm -hmm. a library and get photocopies. And, you know, then, of course, the pandemic was going on. The pandemic was like at its height when I was trying to find out this information. And, oh, gosh, it just it was so difficult. And I ended up finding the biography that I wanted for $250. And I thought about buying it. I really did. But the Uh Edison Center bought it for me because they are... You know, the Edmistons, Althea Edmiston wrote it. So it totally fit for them to buy it, buy it for their center. And so yeah. they bought it for the center. I got to come and take a look at it. I got to read it. I got to photocopy all of its pages. It was magical. It was beautiful. And then one day I was on eBay minding my own business, <laughs> as one does on eBay. Uh-huh. And I found the exact same book in pristine condition, better condition than the one that the Edmiston Center purchased for $62. How? <laughs> That's amazing. I don't know. Like, but now I have it and it's just in my possession and it's beautiful and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I, I blah. along with like Francis Grimke's complete works, it's like one of my prize yeah. possessions. Of course it is. So... Anyway, that's kind of the story of how I found out more information about her. And just to give you some backstory on her, she was born into slavery in Alabama. So we, we were like, Sarah G. Stanley is South. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, let's head to the deep south. <laughs> yep. <laughs> let's get down to the deep and dirty south. And so she was um, enslaved by a Presbyterian minister's family 
kind mm-hmm. of raised in the faith, sat alongside the minister's children and learned about God. And, you know, I was telling her story to someone once and they were like, oh, so she was raised more like a child, more like one of their children than like a slave. And it was like, um, I think they probably taught their children how to read and their children when they grew up could leave anytime they wanted and their children like just you know a long (laughs) list of ways that like no not the same (laughs) Um, just that typical like it's a reminder that like no matter how kind quote unquote your enslavers were at the end of the day you were still still property person exactly yeah exactly and so you know, she was freed right before the end of the Civil War and as an adult woman in her 30s, went to Sabbath schools and sat alongside children and learned how to read and learned how to write and mm-hmm. kind of went on staff at one of the schools, started making her own money, ended up buying her own home, which is an incredible feat for any woman during the it's era, huge. let yeah. alone a black woman, let alone a formerly enslaved black woman. And she heard William Shepard, a black missionary to the Congo, come to her school and just talk about his missionary experiences. And she was like, I have got to get there. But by mm-hmm. this time, she's in her 50s. And so when she petitions to become a missionary to the Congo, the, th- the powers that be are just kind of like, you old. she's just like just just stay home because it's not easy like the journey that she took it's it's a hundreds it's hundreds of miles inland hundreds of miles on foot then you get onto then you have to get on the the river and then you have to like be on the river for days and days and days you get where you go on the river and then you walk hundreds of more miles like it is it is arduous and so Mm -hmm. and 50 then of course is not the same as 50 now (laughs) no no (laughs) um so she says you know what i'm gonna sell my home i'm gonna finance my own journey because i'm going and she goes and she goes with the shepherds and the edmistons and she spends years of her life at the pantops home for girls which she starts in Mm -hmm. congo and she takes in um mostly girl children in the Congo and teaches them all the things that she learned when she was a child. So they learn mm-hmm. they learn how to be seamstresses. They learn how to wash. They learn how to like she teaches them everything that she knows and just pours into them. And she also rescues a number of children because at this time Congo is Belgian Congo. And mm-hmm. good old Leopold. Yep. Good old Leopold. That's what I was going to talk about. Yep. Uh-huh. I won't go into that. I'll let you do that. But it is it is a treacherous place, to mm-hmm. be, particularly mm-hmm. for children. And so there are times when, like, she has to trade a pound of salt for the life of a child. Yeah. Right? Like, she she is rescuing, quite literally rescuing these children mm-hmm. um, and bringing them up in her home. She ends up going back to America on furlough one time for health, comes back again. Then the last time she leaves, she doesn't get to come back because she's just at this point, she's just elderly. She barely has any teeth left in her mouth. Like she has she has given her health ministry in the Congo. Like she has poured herself out. Mm -hmm. And so she spends the rest of her life teaching in Alabama and dies at a ripe old age. She dies at 99 years old, Mm -hmm. which considering the environment she's lived in, like how much violence this woman must have seen and been around. And and how sick she was when she came home. Yes. 99 today is a feat, let alone at the turn of the 20th century. That's incredible. Crazy. 
Yeah. I was really glad that you started with kind of outlining the constraints of American slavery as pertains to religion specifically. Mm -hmm. Like, I think especially as we talk so much in present day about religious liberty, like this, this is religious persecution to yeah. the nth degree it not is being able to say merry christmas is is not the same as not being allowed yeah, to read the bible not having that on your starbucks cup versus you're not allowed to read the bible for yourself yep. you're only allowed or to assemble. receive you can't even or assemble, assemble even gather yes even gathering even the fact that they couldn't legally marry so you all of their relationships you know how when Obama was in office and people would be like every inconvenient thing that happened was like thanks Obama yeah okay so this is all like thanks Nat because like Nat. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you scared the white people and now we can now <laughs> look at our lives exactly Nat Turner's rebellion which was everything kind of a changes point. yes mm-hmm. everything changes because it's like okay he was an enslaved man who gathered people together and yep. read the Bible and came up with some things that led to violence for white people. And so as yep. soon as Nat was captured and killed, it was like, all right, y'all ain't gathering no more. Nothing. Y'all ain't reading no Bibles no more. Y'all yep. like, shut it down. If shut you're gonna down. go, if church is gonna happen, it's gonna be under the master's control. Yes. It's going to be ministers that they've chosen who are gonna preach particular messages, who are gonna mm-hmm. select particular passages of the Bible. You know, you yes. talk about in the book avoiding the Moses story and the story of the Israelites, you well, know. That was Nat's um, bread and butter. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they were so, just like, uh-uh, we can't have that. Yeah, even which to, I'm being facetious, you know. Obviously, it was not Nat Turner's. Of course, fault. of course. But as a result, but, yes, it's a consequence. Um, just trying to like control. You know, America's constantly afraid of a slave uprising because we Haiti has happened. Haiti okay? has happened. Like it, they have seen what happens. Possible. Yes, exactly. they've seen what is possible. And you know, it's so interesting. When I was, and I'm gonna get into. I'm. I'm. We're getting into the last few episodes, and I'm just gonna get myself in trouble all this time. <laughs> I've been behaving myself. But I didn't say um, it was her. <laughs> was talking, you know, back when I was teaching, was in a class one time, and you know, my kids were having a Socratic dialogue, and we're, and one of the questions that the kids asked was, "What if we would have had a black president like way sooner? Like, what if we would have had a black president in like mm-hmm. the early 1800s?" And another kid goes, "Well, it would just be we would have to make sure." that he wasn't out to plot revenge against white people. We would have to make sure that he wanted to be president for the right reasons. <laughs> and um, I I didn't say anything because it's a Socratic dialogue and I'm a, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like a teacher, okay? Just 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 let dialogue. Listen. I'm just mm-hmm. I'm over here. I'm I'm a fly on the wall. Mhm. You know like your conscience bears witness to the cruelty that has been inflicted upon black people because your first thought when a black person is in power is I hope he doesn't treat us like we've been treating them. Yep. And what's most interesting to me about that thought and honestly is an idea for a podcast that I've had for a very long time is that idea goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson wrote about that. We have the wolf by the ear, so we best not let go because it's a wolf, you know, and like the cruelty that we've done. That's even when we talk about, again, different types of abolitionism. One idea was colonization because the concept of Black people remaining on American soil peacefully in relationship and in, you know, citizenship with the people who oppressed them, people were terrified. 
they thought that will never happen. That will never be because of the treatment that we have, you know, that we have enforced upon these people and inflicted upon these people. So yeah, it's just really interesting to me. It's something I pay attention to as a nerdy historian. When people say things like that, I'm like, you know, the founding fathers, the ideologists of the early American Republic did a really good job because you don't even know where that thought comes from. Yeah. But <laughs> you feel it. You feel but it. You feel deeply. it. Exactly. It's, it's insane to me that, that Mariah Fearing goes from being enslaved in Alabama, not even being allowed to learn how to read, which, mm-hmm. by the way, in Alabama, it was illegal to teach enslaved people and black people in general how to read. I don't think mm-hmm. people understand that. Like, it was illegal to teach black people, period, point blank, no matter what their legal status was. Yeah how to read and so she goes from not being allowed to read not being able to read the bible to helping to translate the bible into into the native languages of the congo and there you go yeah there we go (laughs) yes yes so it's just an incredible trajectory of her life just the the level the the way that the world is changing at this point in history is fascinating that's what i wanted to just throw in as well to kind of give us a more global context to what Mariah is entering um when she goes so kind of close of the 19th century is a time that historians refer to as the scramble for Africa so all of these European nations including Belgium are basically fight fighting for colonization they found tons of resources gold silver you know cocoa coffee all these different things that American American African soil is ripe with mm-hmm. and are fighting for colonization. So when Mariah gets there, it is under Belgian King Leopold II and his Ooh, army, yes. it's awful. Like you can look it up and read about it. The his death army toll is at least 10 million, at least 10 million Congolese people killed over stuff mm-hmm. he goes in there to extract rubber ivory to just strip the land mm-hmm. of its natural resources and essentially kills anyone who's gonna get in his way um yes. that's basically how the colonization of the congo actually happened so also even when we super popular for cutting off people's hands yes that was like a really big not leopold himself leopold himself never actually went to congo um, in his name. So these Belgians come and they mobilize Congolese natives to mm-hmm. be part of their army, to be their soldiers. But they don't trust the Congolese natives, kind of the same situation we've been talking about, because they're like, yep. if we give them too much, too many bullets, they're going to turn those bullets on us. Mm-hmm. So we only give you a certain amount of bullets. And for every bullet that you fire, you have to have a hand to prove that you killed someone with the bullet to keep them from hunting because they're starving and to also keep them from mutiny. So these Congolese soldiers would go hunt and kill and eat things and then be like, okay, how many bullets did we use to hunt? Three? Cool. We need three hands. That is... So there's actually pictures of William (sighs) Shepard with Congolese children who are just like missing limbs. Mm Mm-hmm. It's... Yeah. When when you look at that era of time and colonization efforts, it is not just a straightforward. I think especially because we think about missionaries going to these places and how colonization allowed for that. I've had a lot of people argue, you know, 
well, you know, without colonization, we wouldn't have gotten the gospel. Um, <laughs> a, that's historically not the case. Yeah, and B, the gospel had been in Africa for a really long for time. For a really long time. And then on top of that, just the violence that goes hand in hand mm-hmm. with that, you know, Christianizing effort is something that we have to really reckon with. And you have that constant, you know, the constant pull and tug, right? Because mm-hmm. like even David Livingston is in near the Congo, right? Yep. To to spread the gospel. Um, he's around like Zambia. We've all heard the phrase Dr. Livingston, I presume. Yep. Spoken by a man who was who was hired by King Leopold to kind of like launch his efforts in the Congo. This dude raped and pillaged his way through the con- like just it it's wild. Like his his yeah. own by his own account. Mm-hmm. By his own account. And so it's so interesting that even there's this juxtaposition of like, yes, David Livingston is there to spread the gospel. And he's also coming in contact with people who were there for completely nefarious reasons. Yes. The two are existing at once, for mm-hmm. sure. The takeaway from this from this one for me, the takeaway from Mariah's life for me is this woman lived for 99 years. Mm-hmm. And the trajectory of her life and the trajectory of history and, and, and the story that ends up being told across her life is, is incredible. Yeah. It's something that that her parents could not have dreamt of in their wildest dreams when she mm-hmm. was born. And she obeyed God. Like, uh, this woman was born with nothing, worked to have her own property, and then gave away everything That's willingly crazy. to nothing again for Christ. I have nothing to add to that. I'm just like, <laughs> That's what I find incredible about incredible. her. Just- She's incredible. Yeah, she's amazing. And she makes me think about that verse where Paul is talking about learning to be content in all states, you know, in all things. And I'm like, that is what that is. That's what Mariah Fearing was doing. She gained enough wealth to own her own property and then gave it all away to serve God and kept doing it until she was too sick to be able to carry on. Praise God. She gave everything. She gave all her money and all her teeth. That's what gets me. Like by the time she went back home, she was in so much pain. Yeah. Ain't no pain like dental pain. Oh no. Nothing like it. And was still trying to, she was scrambling to get back. Mm -hmm. She wanted to die there. It's amazing. I love it. So grateful for her. So as we close off Mariah, we are going to be jumping forward in history. We, we're getting into the two youngest women of Carved and Ebony over the next two episodes. We're going to go Lucy Craft Laney, and then we're going to go Nanny Helen Burroughs. Yep. And we're really excited to share with you about them and yes. the schools that they founded. And mm-hmm. just the two, they're two completely different women. But Oh, yeah. And the world they belong to is a very particular tone that is different to what we've been dealing with so far. So I'm excited to talk about them. All right, y'all. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.